good morning again. Let's turn to Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to invite you to grab a Bible, turn there, pull it up on your phone, turn there. I want to be able to look at the text as always. It's Again, good to see you. Good morning, church. It's great every week to be together around God's Word. Uh, I woke up excited this reason this morning for two reasons. One, we've been meeting as a church for almost three months, and it's still exciting. Sundays are my favorite day of the week. I love getting to be here, getting to be your pastor, getting to share God's Word, getting to see you all. Um, I woke up excited for another reason, though. In two days, Tuesday, October 31st, we get a chance to celebrate one of my favorite holidays. One of what I think is the most underrated holiday of the year, a day to dress up and to celebrate, to eat good food, to be with friends and family. I'm obviously talking about Reformation Day. I'm a Baptist, I can't say Halloween, y'all would drive me out of town. No, my, guys, my kids' names are Piper, Calvin, and Charlie. So obviously Reformation Day is a pretty big deal in our home. We celebrate Reformation Day because a little over 500 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, a German monk named what? Someone shout it out. Martin Luther. All right, we're going to be interactive this morning. Martin Luther slammed, nailed his famous 95 theses on a church door in Wittenberg, officially kicking off what we know as the Protestant Reformation, which was a worldwide movement set on reforming the people of God, the church of God, back to the word of God. At the time in the 1400s and early 1500s, the church had strayed from some core key doctrines. They'd strayed from some core key practice. And so Luther and many, many others set about reforming the church. At its heart, the Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement, and that's why we celebrate it. We celebrate it because those men that reformed the church in the 1500s brought the church back to the Bible. Luther summarizes this well. In the first of his 95 theses, he said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Here's what he was getting at. Christians, as applies to us, must always be a people who are reforming, who are returning back to God's word. Because Christians do that because that's what God's people have always done. That's what God's people are going to do in Nehemiah chapter 13. So we're in this final week of Nehemiah. We've been in Nehemiah for eight weeks, and we're going to see in our time in the Word this morning that Nehemiah is going to come back to Jerusalem one last time to reform the people of God one last time. And in so doing, what he does is he offers us a model as the church today, a model that shows us that Christians always need to be reforming, that we too are in need of this continual returning. So let me provide some context behind chapter 13. Nehemiah 13 takes place at least 12 years after chapter 12. There's a gap between 12 and 13 because Nehemiah had to go back to the king of Persia, the guy who sent him to Jerusalem in the first place. So chapter 13 is kind of like the epilogue in the story of Nehemiah. It's the end scene after the credits. We saw last week in chapter 8 that the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt, and so the people, they come together to worship. 
And this worship leads to obedience. We talked about that last week. And this obedience led to a renewed covenant and a renewed commitment before the Lord. In Nehemiah chapter 10, the people are rejoicing and they renew the covenant before God. They promise to keep the Sabbath. They promise not to neglect the house of their God by bringing in tithes and offerings for the Levites. They promise to honor the Lord and to obey his word. And so in Nehemiah chapter 10, there's this joyful renewal of a covenant. In chapter 12, they dedicate the walls to the Lord. The Bible tells us the joy in Jerusalem was heard far away. So the end of Nehemiah 12, there's this triumphant moment where the people of God are back with renewed walls, rebuilt city, rebuilt temple, and a renewed commitment and covenant before the Lord. And then we get this break, a 12-year break. And Nehemiah, in chapter 13, comes back to Jerusalem to check on the welfare of the people. And surprise, the people of God are doing exactly what they said they wouldn't do. They're neglecting the house of their God. They're failing to keep the commitments they made to him. They've gotten complacent. They've drifted into sin. They've lost the zeal that they once had. And as a result, their spiritual lives are a mess. And so one last time, Nehemiah sets about to reform the people. And this will be our lesson today, Coastal, our main takeaway, because of our own tendency to sin because of our own tendency to drift, just like the Israelites, we too are in need of constant reforming of the word of God. We need it desperately in our Christian lives. Like Luther said 500 years ago, our entire lives should be ones of repentance. And so here's the plan this morning. We're gonna walk verse by verse through this passage, through chapter 13, and Lord willing, we'll pull out four specific ways that the Israelites failed to live up to their commitments before the Lord. And we're gonna move pretty quickly. We'll see a high level overview of these four failed commitments. And we'll see how each might apply to us as well. And then we'll close our time today. We'll close the book on Nehemiah, looking at how this reforming happens and what we might be able to apply to our lives today. So let me pray. Let's pray and then we'll open up the word of God. Father, I thank you for this time, for the fact that, we talked about last week, that we get to come together as a church to do what your people have done for thousands of years, to open up this book and say, thus saith the Lord. So God, in this time, I pray that your word would do what you say it will do, God, that it would bring conviction, that it would provide example, that it would offer comfort that it would challenge us and conform us, reform us more and more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, number one in your notes. Nehemiah 13, we're going to see unfulfilled commitments. Unfulfilled commitments. <coughs> Excuse me, let's read it. And we'll flesh this out. Nehemiah 13, this is the word of God. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. I'm going to pause just real quick. This is a fascinating story. If you want to read it, Numbers chapter 22 tells us the story 
But the people, Ammonites and the Moabites, hired a prophet to curse Israel. God turns that curse into a blessing. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Now, let's pause here again. This is actually pretty shocking what's happening here in Nehemiah 13. In the very room in the temple where they were supposed to, to store the tithes, the offerings used for the sacrifices, they had made a little room, almost like an apartment, for Tobiah to live in. Now, if you've been with us for a couple months, you know this name. We remember Tobiah. Let me see head nods if you remember Tobiah. This Tobiah is the same one who all throughout this story has been opposing the work of God. Tobiah, along with a guy named Sanballat, have opposed Nehemiah. They've sent him threatening letters. They tried to ambush him. They spread lies about him. He opposed the work of God. And now the people have made him a room in the temple of the same God that he has opposed for 15 years. And on top of that, Tobiah is an Ammonite, which we saw in verse 1, Ammonites were not allowed in the assembly of God. So they brought in this Ammonite, this Ammonite who's opposed the people of God into the temple, and they've made him a room to live in, in the temple of God. Nehemiah is understandably livid. Look at his response in verse 8. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave the orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Why was Nehemiah so angry here? Because the temple was to be used for worship. It was a sacred place, a place where the people would go to meet God, to have their sin forgiven. They would offer these sacrifices as an atonement. And when they made this little room for Tobiah, they've replaced the exact location where the offerings are supposed to go with an Ammonite. Because they did that, the atonements and the forgiveness, the atonements and the sacrifices were supposed to bring were compromised. And so we see here letter A, the first unfulfilled commitment for Israel, compromised worship. They say in Nehemiah chapter 10 that we will not neglect the house of our God, yet this is exactly what they're doing. The temple and its worship system was compromised. Offerings and sacrifices were being threatened. God was not being worshiped rightly, and this angered Nehemiah. And listen, church, it also angered Jesus. If you know your Bible, you know the story in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes into the very same temple that Nehemiah is in. Yet in John chapter 2, the problem is not a room for an Ammonite. In John 2, the problem is vendors and money changers, people who were in the temple exchanging foreign currency and selling birds and animals used in sacrifice. They were doing this for two reasons. One, they wanted to make money in the house of the Lord. And two, they wanted to make worship as cheap, as easy, and as convenient as possible. And because worship was being threatened, because the integrity of the temple system was being threatened, Jesus was outraged. 
It's the angriest we see him in the Gospels. Jesus weaves together the cords to make a rope, and he goes all Nehemiah on them. He drives them out. He literally turns over the tables and clears the people out. Now, here's what we have to understand this morning. God cares about how we worship him. God cares greatly about how we worship him. We don't get to cheapen or change worship. God is the one that gets to decide how he's worshiped, not us. And God in his grace has laid out for us in the New Testament that when the church comes together for worship, we do so to sing and to pray and to give, to preach, to read the word of the Lord and to observe the ordinances of of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll do here as a church in a couple weeks. God sets these guidelines for us. We can't compromise on them. The Israelites were compromising, misusing the storehouse reserved for tithes and offerings, and on top of that, allowing an Ammonite who opposed the work of God to live within the temple itself. This was a big deal. This was the first unfulfilled commitment we see from the Israelites. All right, let's keep reading verse 10. And I also found that the portion of the Levites that had not been given to them, so that the Levites (coughs) and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought in the tithe of the grain, the wine, and the oil into the storehouses. So we see here in this passage, a second commitment that the Israelites had broken. This is letter B in your notes, neglected giving. Neglected giving. Verse 10 tells us the people had stopped tithing. They had stopped giving their portions to the Levites, and so the Levites had no other choice but to flee to their fields to try to work up enough food themselves to try to make ends meet. Now, here's where some background info of the Old Testament might be helpful. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but when the Promised Land was divided in the book of Joshua, they were the only tribe to not be given an allotment of the land. This was because of the command in Deuteronomy 18. The Levites had no land inheritance because the Lord himself was supposed to be their inheritance. The Levites had a special duty to support the work and worship of the Lord, to minister in the temple, to fulfill the duties of the priesthood. And because they had no territory themselves, God commanded the other 11 tribes of Israel to tithe, to financially support the work of the Levites, to give a tenth. Tithe literally means tenth. Numbers 18.21 puts it this way, to the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. And so God had designed this system where all the people support the work of the Levites. They support the work of the priests. And here in Nehemiah 13, the people had stopped doing that. They weren't tithing. Even after recommitting in chapter 10 to tithe and to not neglect the house of their God, we see here that there are no tithes being collected and that Tobiah is living in the very room where they would store the tithes. Now, Coastal, here's why this is a problem. Apart from being just a direct violation of the commands of God, people give to what they believe in. I think if we're honest, this is probably true of us. We give to what we believe in. Think about it. If we believe in something, we give financially to it. If we believe in the vision or mission of it, if it matters to us, then we'll give to it. 
And so what does this tell us? It shows us that when the Israelites stopped supporting the work of the Lord, it was clear that they either didn't believe in the work of the Lord or that God's work didn't matter to them. I think about how this might speak to you today. How does your giving, how does my giving reflect what we do or don't believe in? How does our tithing reflect what matters to us? But if we looked at what we gave our money to, that would show us, church, what we prioritize. Now, this is your church home, especially if you're a member here at Coastal. The expectation for our members is that we do two things joyfully in regards to worshiping through giving. Number one, as members at Coastal Church, we tithe a 10% to support the work of the Lord here in this church, in our community, and around the world. And number two, we give over and above offerings when necessary or when we're led. And church, here's what I don't want us to miss. We do this joyfully. We do it joyfully, open-handedly, because we realize it all belongs to God anyway, and that God cares about our participation in his work. I found this fascinating this week. The book of Malachi written by Malachi, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah. They lived at the same time. And Nehemiah and Malachi, they might have known each other, but Malachi writes this book at the same time that Nehemiah is reforming the people this last time in Jerusalem. And look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. He addresses this problem that Israel is working out. Malachi 3 says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions... You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Church, Nehemiah is saying that when the people withhold their tithes, they're robbing God. And when we don't give, what ultimately belongs to him, we're robbing God. And then God invites the people to test him. This is one of the only times in the scriptures where God invites his people to test him. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse and I will open the windows of heaven and bless you. Like, do you see this in your life right now, Christian? Do you see this sacrificial giving and supernatural blessing? The Israelites missed it. They missed both tithing and blessing because their hearts had become cold towards the work of the Lord. They didn't believe in it or it didn't matter to them. May this never be the case for us, church. All right, let's keep moving. I've got to pick up the pace a little bit. Letter C in your notes, ignored Sabbath. The third unfulfilled commitment that the Israelites break is an ignored Sabbath. Look at verse 15. <laughs> in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Remember, church, in chapter 10, they're renewing this covenant and they promise to keep the Sabbath, to respect, to honor the Sabbath. And here in chapter 13, they're ignoring it. They're profaning it. They're treading wine presses and buying and selling all on the day that the Lord had set aside for his people for worship and for rest. And so again, Nehemiah reforms the people. He forbids them from trading on the Sabbath and even threatens to lay hands on some people who are violating it. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to dive into the theology behind the Sabbath for Christians today. But here's the principle I want us to see. When God's people refuse to regularly pause for worship and rest, then little by little, they become complacent and are tempted to compromise in other areas of their lives as well. Now, why is this? This is because coming together in worship How God intended and instructed his people to worship is one of the natural means of grace that God gives his people to sustain his people. And that gift of grace also guards his people from sin. Corporate worship for us as Christians is both a gift and a guard for us. When we do what we're doing this morning, when we sing scriptural truths, we're reminded of who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel of Jesus. When we hear the word preached, we are reformed again and again, brought back to what the word says, and we see that the word expects a response. Coming to worship is an active step that we take week after week to strengthen and nurture our relationships with Christ. It helps us, church, pursue godliness and reject worldliness. I mean, look at why the Israelites were neglecting the Sabbath. They wanted to be productive, productive from a worldly standpoint. They wanted to buy and sell just a little more, to make just a little more money. And stopping once a week felt counterproductive. Stopping once a week for rest and worship inhibited that productivity. And so they cut it out and it ended up impacting everything. They understood and experienced this principle that when we disregard one of God's commandments, it becomes exponentially easier for us to disregard others. And this led them to their last unfulfilled commitment. We see it in verses 23 through 28, letter D, unequally yoked marriage. Verse 23, in those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, the Ammon and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So here's the context for us. Deuteronomy 7 makes it clear that the Israelites could not take husbands, they could not take wives from foreign countries around them. Now, to be clear, this was not about race. It was about worship. God knew that if the Israelites intermarried with these pagan nations, they would be pulled away. They would start to worship the gods that these other nations worshipped. In verse 26, Nehemiah uses Solomon as an example of this. His heart was turned away from the Lord because he had married foreign women. And God knew, Nehemiah knew, that when the children began speaking other languages and they didn't know Hebrew, the language of the scriptures, it was only a matter of time. They were one generation away from apostasy. 
This happened over and over again in the history of Israel. And to make matters worse, even the high priest's family was going after these foreign women. Look at verse 28. And one of the sons of, <laughs> excuse me, one of the sons of Joida, the son of Elishab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. So get this, church. I want us to see the compromise on the grand scale. If you've been with us in Nehemiah, you see this. First, they create a room for Tobiah, enemy number one. And now the high priest's grandson marries the daughter of Sanballat, enemy number two. This compromise is dangerous for the Israelites. So Nehemiah sees that and he chases him away. Now, here's how this hits home for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 tells us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Again, not about race, but about worship. And this means for us that in our most important relationships, Christian, in our most intimate relationships, we ought to be seeking out people who hold what we hold. If your allegiance is to Jesus Christ this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, then who you date, who you hang out with, who you marry, that allegiance should match. And so if I could offer just a quick word to our single brothers and sisters in the room, maybe you're in high school this morning and everyone's dating around you and you feel that pressure and you want to date and there's a guy or girl that likes you. Maybe you're in college and that's the case or you're doing your post-grad or you're a young adult or maybe you're in the middle of your life right now. Here's what I would say to you with all the love in the world. That desire you have for marriage is a good and right desire. Praise God for that desire. And there will be someone who comes along, who treats you well, who is kind, who's really good with your mom, who loves all the things that you do. We have the same hobbies, like the same sports teams. Your personalities are compatible, but guess what? That person doesn't love Christ. It would be so easy in that moment, single brothers and sisters, to think I'm lonely, I wanna be married, God has sent me this good person, <laughs> I'm gonna compromise. Don't do it. Run from that person. And let this be a pastoral word to you this morning. If you're in a relationship right now where your boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't come to church with you, they don't love talking about Jesus, they don't love Christ, this is your warning. The Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked. That means who we date, who we spend time with, who we marry, the most intimate people in our lives have to love Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't love lost people. We absolutely do, but your closest circle, they have to love Jesus. Matt Chandler put it this way, your loneliness now is far better than your loneliness later with a man that won't love you like Christ loves the church. So with, again, all the compassion in the world, do not settle. Now, if you're here this morning, and here's where I wanna be sensitive as well, if you're here this morning and you're married to someone who doesn't love Christ, the Bible has a word for you too, love and serve them, pray for them, Pray for them to come to know Jesus. Read and meditate over passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Peter chapter 3. There's good insight for you there. I'm not talking about situations of abuse or abandonment. Those are totally different stories. But as a general rule, the Bible calls us to love and serve our spouse. And if you're in a situation this morning where you're married to somebody who doesn't love Christ and they'll stay married to you, 
then love and serve them. Listen, here's what Israel missed in Nehemiah 13. The closest people to you will end up forming you. The closest people to you will end up shaping who you are. Think back to our previous point on the Sabbath for a minute. Verse 16, the Tyrians were mentioned in verse 16 as people who lived in Jerusalem who were doing some of the buying and the selling. And so I don't know this, this is Colin Curtis speculation here, but it would have been really easy for the Israelites who are keeping the Sabbath to look at these Tyrians, these foreigners living in Jerusalem and say, man, they are more productive than I am. They're making more money than I am all because I have to take off on Saturdays. Why am I doing that? And so little by little, that compromise, that temptation to give an inch would have grown for them until we see in Nehemiah 13, they are just like the foreigners. They're just like the other people because they've allowed themselves to be influenced by people who do not follow God. We want our most intimate relationships on earth to be with other followers of Jesus who are pushing us, encouraging us to be more like Christ. All right, I know that was a ton of info this morning, but I hope we're starting to see a pattern here. Compromising worship, neglecting giving, ignoring the Sabbath, intermarrying with foreign nations. Guys, these are all symptoms. They're symptoms, Coastal. They're symptoms of hearts that have slowly but surely drifted from God. And this morning, through our time in the Word, we've been given a chance to examine our own lives for these symptoms. Are there areas of our lives where worship is being compromised? Are we neglecting the discipline of giving to supporting the work of the Lord? Are we practicing rest in worship on the Sabbath? Are our closest relationships with believers? Listen, if your walk with Jesus this morning is not where you want it to be right now, then check your life for these symptoms. They're here in the scriptures, in the Bible, for a reason, to warn us and to admonish us. Sometimes our hearts can drift from God without us even realizing it. This happened to Israel, and it can happen to us. And when this happens, we follow the model of Nehemiah, and slowly but surely, we reform. We bring our lives and our hearts back into alignment with God's word. Remember our main idea this morning. God has designed our Christian lives to be ones of continual repentance, continual reforming, where over and over again, we come back to the source. One of the mottos of the Reformation, this is the last Reformation thing I'll say, one of the mottos of the Reformation is semper reformanda, which means in Latin, always reforming, always repenting, always coming back to the authority, to the source of God's word. This is Number two in your notes, Semper Reformanda. I want to close our time this morning looking at the how. So we've seen the need, right? We've seen the symptoms. People of God, we're the people of God. We need reforming. And if we're not diligent about not drifting from Christ, not drifting from our walk with God, then these symptoms can emerge in our lives. If we see these symptoms in our lives, it should be warning signs for us. So we reform. How do we do that? One last time in this series, we're going to look at Nehemiah as a model, Nehemiah as an example. We see that compared with the four unfulfilled commitments of the Israelites, Nehemiah offers us three commitments that we follow in our lives. Letter A, there's a commitment to purity. A commitment to purity. Look at verse 30. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. So three different times in this chapter, do we see a cleansing or a purification? He cleanses the temple in verse 9. He purifies the Levites in verse 22. And again in verse 30, he's cleansing the priests. 
Here's what I want us to see this morning and I want every eye on me. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have already been cleansed. You've already been purified by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. If we're Christians in this room, that means something. It means we believed in the message of the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sin and Jesus bodily rose from the dead. What do we do with the gospel? We repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel and we receive Christ. Now, <coughs> excuse me, as people, church, who have received Christ, it means that we're clean. We're cleansed and purified. And so we have to have that as our foundation before we start looking at the reforming. Even Luther talked about reforming under the lens of justification by faith. We are justified, cleansed by grace alone and then called to reform. And so if you're not a Christian in this room, that's what I want you to hear, that you too can be cleansed, that you can have your sin forgiven. You can be purified by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. Now, for those of us in this room who have done that, I want us to take one more step. As people who have been purified, the Bible expects us to maintain and pursue purity. And this is what we see from Nehemiah. He's been purified and he demands and expects purity. Listen to the Apostle Paul here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What does this tell us? It tells us that as people who have been cleansed, as people who have been purified by the grace of God, now through the grace of God, we are expected to keep cleansing, to keep reforming, not earning our salvation, church, but confirming our salvation. The line there is really important for us to see, but it's an imperative we see over and over again in the New Testament. God expects holiness from his people. And so we as a church want to work to be free from every defilement of body and spirit. Let her be a commitment to practicality. This is really important. So Nehemiah purifies the people, but he doesn't do so in an abstract kind of feel-good way. Look at verse 31. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. And so he didn't just commit to purifying the people once, he took practical steps, steps that cost him something to help them remain pure. Nehemiah buys the wood for the offering. He buys the wood for the first fruits. Listen, here's how this hits us today. If your commitment to purity is abstract, if it's something that you think is a really good idea, a good general goal for you. Okay, the Bible tells me to live purely. I want to live purely, but you're not taking any concrete practical steps to do so. Then ask yourself the question, how badly do I actually want purity? Like all of us, I think in this room on a Sunday morning say that, yes, we want to do this. Second Corinthians 7, we want to be free from every defilement. But if we say that and consistently put ourselves in positions where we know we'll be tempted then I have news for you. You don't really want purity. A purity of life must be practical. And as we see from Nehemiah, sometimes that means it costs us something. And so I don't know how this hits. Maybe for you, there's a way that you're compromising your worship this morning. You know how to sound really good and look really good on Sundays. But throughout the rest of the week, 
You're creating in your heart a room for an Ammonite. That's just a little bit of compromise. And that compromise is going to start affecting everything. Maybe for you this morning, you've neglected giving. That might be a real action step for you. Maybe you do give, but you give whenever it hits you. You give whenever you feel like it. So maybe the action step for you is to commit to the regular discipline of tithing. Maybe you're neglecting the principle of the Sabbath, ignoring the Sabbath, and you're here this morning in corporate worship, but you're here like once a month, and your schedule keeps you out and away from your church family every other week of the month. If that's you, then know this. That will start to trickle down and have effects on your life. And then finally, maybe you're here this morning and you're in an unequally yoked relationship. Maybe you got a boyfriend or girlfriend that is not on the same level as you. Listen, from my heart to yours, 12 years ago, that was my wife. We were dating. I was not a Christian. She was. She broke up with me because of her love for Christ. That cost her something. And it ended up leading me to the Lord. Not saying that'll happen for you, but I am saying this, it will cost you something. Obedience to the commands of Christ is costly. Nehemiah was committed to purity and he made it practical even when it cost him something. All right, last one. I'll invite the band back up. We're gonna close here in a second. Final thing we see from Nehemiah is a commitment to prayer. A commitment to prayer. I'll close with this. Look at the end of verse 31. Nehemiah prays, remember me, oh my God, for good. It's the last thing he does in this book. He prays, remember me, God, for good. Some of y'all, I'd say most of you are probably here two months ago when we started this series. What did Nehemiah do in chapter one? Anyone remember? Shout it out if you remember. What does he do in chapter one? He prays. He prays. And so here's what I want us to see. This process, this process of reforming, this continual returning that we go through in the Christian life is one that in a very real way, church is bookended with prayer. We pray before, we pray during, all throughout this chapter, we see these little one sentence prayers. Strengthen me, oh God. Help me, oh God. Protect me, oh God. Remember me, oh God. And then he prays at the end. So he prays at the beginning, prays during, and he prays at the end. Here's what that tells us. Our reforming, has to be soaked in the power of prayer. It has to be. It's crucial. This is the model we see from Nehemiah. And here's what Christians do. We tend to swing one of two ways. We pray and then we don't reform. We pray and then we say, God, free me from this temptation. Take it away. Help me to stop being angry. Help me to stop looking at X, Y, Z. Help me, help me, help me. And then we take no concrete steps to actually fix the problem. And then when we still have the problem, we're like, God, what happened? Why did you not deliver me from that? Then on the other hand, here's what we can also tend to do. We can take all the steps. We can do all the reforming and we leave God out of it. And one of the reasons I love this book and I hope that you have grown in your love for Nehemiah this past two months is because Nehemiah shows us, church, how to do both. There's this one little verse in chapter four and I was out on leave, so I didn't get to preach it. So I'm gonna bring it back up right now. Chapter four, verse nine, Nehemiah prays and he sets a guard. He doesn't pray and then hope that no one attacks. He doesn't set a guard and then not ask God to protect. He prays and he sets a guard. So coastal, think about your life right now. I thought about my life so much this week through this lens. Am I praying and reforming or am I just praying? Am I praying and reforming or am I just reforming? To get both of this is critical. Fixing our eyes not on Nehemiah or 
Martin Luther even, but Jesus Christ, knowing that we are cleansed to pray and to reform. And that our Christian lives, as it was said 500 years ago, we'll celebrate this on Tuesday, are to be ones of continual repentance until the day, church, when we come face to face with our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that day, there's no more reforming. On that day, there's no more repenting. On that day, there's no more tears. There's no more sickness. There's no more sin. There's no more brokenness. There's no more need for repenting because we'll be with Jesus. But we're not there, church. We're not there. We're on mission right now. So Nehemiah offers us a word. It's offered us a word for two months. We pray and we reform. We pray and we give. We pray and we go because the mission that God has given us as a church is too important. So let me do that. Let's pray right now. Father, we come before you as a church, Lord, open-handed, God. It's been real sweet to spend, <laughs> to spend eight weeks in this book that Christians don't often read. To look at the leadership of Nehemiah, and see, God, that in this book, there are rich examples for us. There are lessons for us, God. I'm so thankful for what you've done in my heart through this time. How you've shaped me, not as a pastor, but as a Christian. I want to be more like you, Jesus. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church where all of us, for followers of Christ, would say, we want to be more like Jesus. And so, God, I pray for this people right now, for Coastal Williamsburg you would reform us and reform us and reform us by the grace of God, semper reformanda, until we see Jesus. 